All right. When we were here on Christmas Eve, we talked about three main characters in the Christmas story. Does anybody remember which three we talked about? Kids, who did we talk about? We did talk about Jesus, but that's not one of them I was thinking. Yes, Mary and Joseph, and then there was another one, it was a group of people. <laughs> Brooklyn, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds, yep, and then of course we got baby Jesus and all that. Now, as you think about all the Christmas stories in the Bible, there's another group of people that we didn't really talk about at all on Christmas Eve. Does anybody know what that group of people would be? Yes, Elizabeth. Uh, we did talk some about angels, but a group of people. Right. Brooklyn. The wise men. Yes, good job. Brooklyn's got a strategy. Let the other person answer. They get it wrong. Then she'll answer right after that. We'll test it. Does anybody know what the other word for the wise men is? Magi. Where'd that, was that from all the way in the back from Trudy back there? All right, Magi, yes. All right, we're going to look at a passage that talks about the Magi, the wise men today. Now, in the New Testament, there are four what we call Gospels. Like We talk about the Gospel, the good news, but then there are the four Gospels. Anybody know which four they are, what their names are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? So each one is a version, a version. Uh, an account of the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through a particular person's lens. Right? Of those four, how many of them tell the Christmas story? Does anybody know? Anybody want to make a guess? Rick's got pieces in the up. Yep, two. Only two tell the Christmas story. Isn't that interesting? Like if you're going to tell the story of Jesus... Mark just like starts off right with Jesus shows up and starts preaching. John, uh, he starts off with this real poetic thing about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, but doesn't talk about like the birth of Jesus or anything like that. But Matthew and Luke both tell the Christmas story, and they tell different aspects of it. They're two very different guys. Matthew is a Jewish trader, tax collector turned into a disciple. Luke is a Gentile doctor turned into a disciple. And they see things through different lenses. They choose to focus on different things. Does anybody know, Matthew or Luke, which one has the story of the Magi, the wise men? Matthew does. Good job, Amy. All right, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2. So grab a Bible. Matthew chapter 2, if you're using a Black Pew Bible, it's on page 8. While you're finding that, turn to somebody you're sitting next to and share with them either um, one of your favorite things about Christmas this year, or if you're feeling particularly dark, one of the most disappointing things about Christmas this year. Just turn to somebody next to you and and share one of those things as we're finding page 807, Matthew 2. At our house, there was a lot of trading of gifts. 
Matthew chapter 2 tells us the story of the Magi, of the wise men. So we, we read some of Matthew chapter 1 on Christmas Eve. Matthew chapter 2 starts like this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right. Even if you're familiar with this story, some questions should be coming to mind. Who are these wise men? Where did they come from? How do they know about this newborn king of the Jews? And why do they think a star is the sign of this newborn king? Let's talk about this a little bit. These guys are probably from the other side, the eastern side of the Fertile Crescent. So let's put our map up, Matthew. So we've got Bethlehem over on the, the left-hand side there where Jesus is born. If you go all the way to the other side in what is today Iraq and Iran. So you guys recognize this map probably from the Genesis series. So down in the bottom right corner of the Fertile Crescent, you've got the city of Ur where Abraham started out. You've got Babylon a little farther up there. And then way up in Assyria, that would be in um, Iran today, you've got the city of Nineveh. That whole area is what the Bible writers refer to as just the east. So we don't know if these magi came from what is today Iraq in the Babylonian area or what is today Iran in the Assyrian or the Persian area. How would somebody on the other side of the Arabian desert, a 2,000-mile journey, because you can't just go through the desert, you've got to go up and around, how would they even know anything about the Jewish people and put this puzzle together, like, hey, there's a new star. It must mean that there's a new king born to the Jews. How, how would they possibly have any idea about that? Hundreds of years before this, after the Jewish people had been led out of slavery by Moses, and after they had established the new country of Israel in what we would call today the land of Israel, after a bunch of generations of kings and their own rule, their sin piled up to the point where God punished the nation of Israel by sending invading, invading armies to take away the Jewish people as exiles first into the Babylonian Empire, and later into the Assyrian or the Persian Empire. The Babylonians and the Assyrians were kind of trading power back and forth for a few hundred years in that part of the world. You guys may remember King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the best names in the Bible. He goes in, he takes a whole bunch of the Jewish people captive, he takes them off to Babylon. Later, King Cyrus of Persia transfers many of them from Babylon up into the area of Nineveh. Nebuchadnezzar is a bad dude through and through. Cyrus is surprisingly friendly to the Jewish people. In fact, he's convinced that it's, it's God's plan that the Jewish people get to go home to their homeland and rebuild the destroyed city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So a bunch of the Jewish people, they leave the east 
They travel back to Israel and they start rebuilding, but some of them stay in the east. Still a a small Jewish presence even there today. For hundreds of years, there's a Jewish presence in Babylon, in Nineveh, in the surrounding areas. And some of those Jewish people, they were really important, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They rose up high in government status. Daniel was known as a, as a wise man, as a magi. That would have been, like if he had a name tag as he wanders around the palace, it would say Daniel, magi of the king. Apparently there's this leftover pile of knowledge. Daniel himself, he prophesies about the, the coming Messiah. And they, they probably had copies of the oldest parts of the, the Old Testament. And in Numbers Balaam prophesies about this coming king of the Jews and that there's a star that hails his coming. So the the magi, the wise guys of the east, have this accumulated knowledge that they're apparently paying attention to, and they're on the lookout for something to happen. And when when this star shows up, they realize, hey, this must be the star that these ancient documents of the Jews is talking about, and they they start this journey. They travel a thousand miles up and a thousand miles down in order to get to Jerusalem. Now, when they get there, imagine their surprise when they find not a baby, but an old guy as king, Herod. Imagine Herod's surprise when they show up and say, hey, where's the king? No, not you, the new king. Where's the new king? Herod is uh, a little upset about this, as you might imagine. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So King Herod is troubled about the news of a king that's going to take his place, but he doesn't know where this king would be. He recognizes that the Magi think that this is the promised king of old, and so he gets his his scholars together, he gives them a research project. Any students in here love to do research projects? Carrie's working on a research project right now. Where is Carrie? She was here just a minute ago. Oh, she went back down. Okay. She's working on a a research project right now, and she's really enjoying it. Um, She's reading in her free time and just trying to get a whole bunch of information. These guys are given a research project. Herod basically says, okay, guys, get out the whole Old Testament. Go through the whole thing. Figure out where this this Messiah, and I'm sure he kind of spat when he said it. Find out where this Messiah is supposed to be born. Say, okay, figure it out. Guess what? It's Bethlehem. It's like two miles away from Jerusalem, right? It's Bethlehem, the city of David. That is where this Messiah is supposed to be born. What's Herod going to do? Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So we kind of skipped over this in the first couple of verses, but when we read those, those first two verses, we found out that the, the purpose, the reason the wise men were coming was to worship this newborn baby king. And that tells us that they believe that this is not just a regular royal baby, if there is such a thing as a regular royal baby. But there's something supernatural about this baby. This baby deserves worship, not just honor, not just the gifts that they're bringing, not just you know to be published in the newspapers all over the region of Mesopotamia, but this baby is what we would call Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Now Herod kind of picks up on this and he says, you go find the baby, come back, report to me where the baby is so I can go worship him. We have to say, yeah, right. You are such a liar. Verse 9, listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So now we know that this is not simply a star. This is not a natural phenomenon. Maybe if we had just the first part of the story, we could have said, yes, a star burst into life at just the right time that the people of the East considered it the herald of the newborn king and they went looking for him. They knew where to look. Jerusalem, capital city of Jews, king of the Jews, should be in Jerusalem, right? But now we're told that the star is actually guiding them, moving them. The star is moving, like all stars moving through the sky, but stops, comes to rest, we're told, directly over the place where Jesus is. Now, stars don't behave like that. You don't have a star that's cruising across the sky and then stops. This is something supernatural going on. Now, every year at Christmas time, on news programs and in articles and documentaries and all that kind of stuff, probably advertisements on YouTube, you've seen things like, hey, the, the truth behind the star of Bethlehem, or scientists discover, you know, there's a lot of great theories out there. You can download free software on your computer that'll show you the, the night sky at any point in history and from any place on the earth. You go all the way back to Bethlehem. At that point, you can see what do the stars look like, because they move in predictable ways, right? You could do that. But you're not going to see the star of Bethlehem. Because this is not a predictable thing. This is not a natural thing. This is a supernatural something in the sky, guiding them to exactly the right place. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So there's another important detail in here that we can miss if we just skip over it. They arrive, through the guidance of the star, at a house. And they go into the house, and they find Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But the last time we saw Jesus, he was not in the house. He was just in a manger, in a stable, maybe in a cave somewhere. Remember, they had come to Bethlehem just temporarily for this whole Roman census thing. Travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 
get counted, go back to Nazareth. But this is days, in fact, we'll see in the next few verses, this could be two years later, and they're still there. And they've acquired a place to live. They're no longer hanging out with the animals in the stable. They've, they've got a house. There's, this tells us that our nativity scenes are not particularly accurate. Now, I think we should still have our wise men in our nativity scenes, right? But it's not all happening on one particular day. It's not like Jesus is born, they get him cleaned up, the shepherds show up, the wise men show up 15 minutes later. This is stretched out actually over a lot of time, maybe even two years. They find the baby. What's the first thing they do? They fall on the ground and they worship. These, these guys are not Jewish. They're part of a, a pagan land, pagan religion. The shepherds, who are the outcasts of society, and some pagans from a faraway land, so far they're the only people in the gospel stories that recognize who Jesus is and come and worship him. Isn't that amazing? Just amazing. Hmm. They open their treasures, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're not going to talk about that. That's for another sermon some other time, what those things mean. But then they're warned in a dream. Remember how Joseph was had a, a dream of an angel communicating to him, say, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the baby in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, God works in a dream. He says, guys, don't go back to Herod. Instead, you need to depart and go back home right away. Go take the bypass around Jerusalem and head home. Don't stop and see Herod. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream again, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was, fulfill, was, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Have you noticed that this short passage in, in Matthew keeps referencing back these prophecies, prophecies from the Old Testament, it's like every other paragraph, it's as it was written, or as it was said, or as the Lord said, and goes back and, see, this is how he said it, and this is how it's playing out right here. Now we get to the worst part of the story, the terrible part of the Christmas story. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. There's our main clue that we're talking about a long period of time between the birth of Jesus and his flight to Egypt. He's communicated with the wise men. He knows when the star showed up, how long it took him to travel. He puts this all together. He says, all right, anybody in that two-year window, that's that's going to be a safe amount of time. Kill every boy. Not just in Bethlehem, but in that region. Can you imagine? Can you even imagine? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Going back to 
Rachel, mother of the people of Israel. How could God let that happen, right? So we see this, this plan of God throughout history. It keeps referencing back to all these Old Testament prophecies, like God is in control of this plan. It's been planned out for a long time, and yet, how do we reconcile such an unjust, evil thing? Imagine, years later, when Jesus, as an adult, goes through Bethlehem on his journeys of teaching and healing and all that. And maybe nobody knows who he is, that he was the guy that was born in the stable 30-some years beforehand, but... There's a gathering in town, right? There's a party. Everybody's celebrating the healings that he's done and the great teachings. As you look around, Jesus and his buddies are the only ones in that age group in town. The rest of the men died as two-year-olds or younger. This is a real tragedy. The Bible doesn't gloss over it. Matthew could have left it out for us, right? But he puts it in there. Leaves it there for us to wrestle with and say, God, how, how could you let something so unjust happen in your plan? Yet we are to understand clearly that this is part of the plan. We even go back to referencing Rachel, prophecy, the Old Testament. This part of the plan. Now, after all the death and sorrow that Herod has caused here, as he tries to protect his reign so that he can be king for years to come, we find out that he doesn't make it very long himself, and he himself dies very soon after that. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they head off to, to Egypt, and shortly after that, Herod dies, verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So Matthew wraps up this story with another statement about the fulfilling of the prophecies of the Old Testament and how it lines up with this sovereign plan and he keeps communicating supernaturally to Joseph through angels in his dreams. And we are meant to understand that this is the sovereign plan of God. And God has not simply planned it out in the past and like launched the world and said, we'll see how it turns out, hope everything goes well, but that God is intimately involved. He's working the plan. He doesn't just have the plan, he's working the plan. He's intervening. A dream here, an angel here, the magi know when to come and, you know, take the baby and run. He, God is active and at work in this story, making sure that his plan comes together. It's not a plan that God's just making up as he goes because he keeps pointing back to the Old Testament saying this prophecy said this, this prophecy said this, this prophecy said this, and it's all coming together at exactly the right time as God had planned it. God's in control of this. His plan. Do you know that he has a plan for your life too? 
Now, it's not quite as amazing as this plan. You'll probably never run for your life to Egypt. Well, there is an Egypt, Ohio, right? Not far from here. But God has a plan, and he hasn't simply wound it up and let it go and hope it works. He is actively involved. Part of that plan is calling us to respond to his plan. Saying, here's what I'm doing. I invite you to be a part of it. The wise men and King Herod were both, in a sense, invited into his plan. They both had access to the Old Testament prophecy. The Magi, they're on top of it. The, the star shows up, they know what to do and where to go. Herod, he's got to have the guys do the research project to figure it out, but they both know this is what the Old Testament says. This is what the plan of God is over thousands of years, and they respond in two completely different ways. The Magi respond with, this is great news, we've got to find this baby, we've got to worship him, and we've got to give him gifts of value. We have, to, we have to bring and give to him. Herod responds with, this is a threat to my reign, he must die. I have my plan, I will not allow God's plan to rule over my plan. Think about the arrogance of Herod. He is king of the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. He has at his disposal the written scriptures of the Old Testament. He's got uh, many, many experts who can help him understand the Old Testament. He knows by his own words that this Messiah, this king of the Jews, is to be born in Bethlehem. He knows all of that. He knows that the, the baby king should be worshipped. He even says it with his own mouth. And yet he says, but I am more important, and he must die. Two very different responses to the same information in the Old Testament. And there's the challenge for us. How do we respond to the revealed will of God, the plan of God? God has given it to us in the Bible. He's told us what he wants of us. How will we respond? Will we respond like Herod? Like, no, I'm in charge. I'm just going to ignore you. Maybe even going to try to destroy you, get you out of my life. Or we're going to respond like the Magi, and we come, we humbly, we bow our knee, we worship, we offer ourselves. In the book of 1 Peter, we're told about the plan of God. We're told what God calls us to be. He says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That is, don't be like you used to be before Jesus saved you. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Think about, think about a, a sentence in the Bible that's a threat to the rule of our own selves, and that, that's it right there, right? But as he who called you, like he initiated it, He's in charge. He who called you is holy, perfect. You also be holy in all your conduct. What? What a high calling. What a standard to call us to. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it goes, goes back to the Old Testament again. Now our world is becoming more corrupt. It's not just the powers that be and the guys at the top that are making the decisions. 
we look at it and we think, what in the world is going on here? But in general, our world is, our society is getting less godly. We are called to be different than that. We're called to be holy. We're called to be different and set apart and to reflect God. Now, one of the weird things about the, the decay in our society is if you just stay the same at your level of holiness, you will stand out more and more as the years go by. Because like here, you're here and the water level keeps dropping, you're going to be farther and farther above the water level. But that's not what God calls us to. God calls us to increasing holiness. God calls us not to compare ourselves to the world, which is getting worse, and say, well, I'm doing better than that. I'm more, I'm more holy than the world around me. No, instead, we are called to a different standard. And that standard is given to us in a passage that we looked at last week and even the week before in Romans chapter 8. We looked at the golden chain where we see that God chooses, he he predestines people for salvation, and he calls them, and he justifies them. And we get to the end of the chain, and he, he's glorified them. And yet, what we skipped over the last two weeks is really the, the purpose for that golden chain. So I want to wrap up the ser- sermon with this. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is the point of this, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. The point of this chain, the point of this work that God is doing is that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that we would be more like Jesus, not just better than a messy, yucky world that's making dumb decisions. But be like Jesus, conform to the image of Christ. To do that, we've got to respond like the Magi. We have to humble ourselves. We have to come to Jesus, worship him for who he is. We come not as takers, but as givers, offering ourselves to him. We have to resist this urge inside us, like Herod, to take control of our lives, control the situation, to squash any threat to the rule of ourselves over our own lives. But your calling, if, if you are a disciple of Jesus, your calling this next year is to be more like Christ, to look more like Christ, to act more like Christ, to think more like Christ, to Pray more like Christ, to live your whole life more like Christ. Next week, I'll be giving you guys Bible reading plans for 2022, and hope you'll take advantage of some of those options. What we saw today in this passage, that the plan of God throughout the whole Old Testament into the New Testament is being worked by Him. And if you want to align yourself with the plan of God, you need to be familiar with the plan. The Magi were, they aligned themselves with it. King Herod was, he fought against it. It's my prayer that each of you in this room, others who are not here, would look at 2022 and say, this is a year that I want to yield myself more fully to Christ. That I want to 
come and worship him like the Magi. And I want to be transformed more into the image of Christ to be like him. I want him to be the picture of what I should be, to be my vision, to be the, the thing that I'm working for. We're going to sing Be, my, be That My Vision in just a minute. But as we get ready to sing that song, I'd like you guys to reflect on a couple things. Matthew, would you put the questions up there? Oh, you got it. How have you become more or less like Jesus in 2021? And what's your plan for becoming more like Jesus in 2022? Let's pray. Father, thank you that Matthew includes a story for us of what happened after Christmas. And Lord, some of us, we're kind of worn out from the last few days. Think about the, the long journey that the Magi took and how worn out they must have been and and yet they came and they, they worshiped Jesus. You help us to, to focus on you more and, and not just let you fade into the past. Wait for you to come up again at Easter time. Lord, I pray that you would consume our vision, that you would cause us to see you and see your plan and see your work and, and see your calling on our lives as we go about our regular days. We would not be able to ignore you. Certainly that we would not respond like Herod and, and want to push you out. Lord, I pray for each of these folks here. Some of them are wrestling with things that happened over the last couple of days, conversations that were had, things that were said that hurt. I pray that you comfort them, that you help them to uh, respond by loving those who have, who have hurt them. Just like you, Lord Jesus loved us as we were Jesus. Pray for those who are feeling worn out and exhausted, Lord, would you be their strength? Would you uh, help them to rely on you? As, as you sought strength and comfort from your heavenly Father in the, in the garden when you were exhausted and, and worn out, may they find strength and comfort from you. Lord, as we reflect uh, what you've done in us over these last 12 months, as we look forward to the next 12 months, Lord, would you help us to see clearly what you've been doing in our lives, how we have partnered with you, how we have worked against you, and would you work in our hearts, Lord, so that we want to partner with you better this next year, so we want to be more conformed into the image of Christ. Lord willing, if we make it through the next year, I would hope that we can look back on 2022 and we can say, I have become more like Jesus.